listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. This is the Breakfasters podcast, March 15 to 18 with Sarah Jeff and Geraldine. We had a massive week this week. Uh, really great to have Tim Minchin in chatting to us about Matilda the Musical and also Luke McGregor talking about his show Lukewarm Sex. And Zora Sanders telling us about Birth of the Confidence Queen and us reviewing our sad and lonely dinners. <laughs> <laughs> Matilda the Musical, a stage musical based on the children's novel by Roald Dahl. It's being universally acclaimed in London, New York and Sydney. Winner of seven Olivier Awards, the most ever by a single musical. It officially opened here in Melbourne at the Princess Theatre on Friday night. We are now joined by actor, musician, writer, comedian and the man responsible for the music lyrics for Matilda, Tim Minchin. Yay. <laughs> Hi. Hey. I guess applauded. Hey. Hey. Thank you. You were reading it off hand. Yeah, yeah I wrote some notes. notes. I did some research. Super uh, retro. In my research, mm. I also discovered, is it true that you tried to get the rights for Matilda to do a stage play back? Like, yeah, some, like back when I was writing youth theatre and stuff in Perth for no money. Um, it was w- one of the ideas I had was I thought the Matilda would be a great musical so I wrote off to the Dahl Estate and they wrote back with some sort of quite scary form letter like we consider all you know applications <laughs> for the rights of the theatre. If you send us a score we'll consider it for... I'm like I was just I just wanted to do it at the local children's oh. theatre group and I don't know what a score is and because I don't read or write. Music I wouldn't and even so think to up. even go to asking. <laughs> yeah, well, mate, it's weird that I did. Yeah. And, I, and it's not weird that I let it put me off because it, it would have been... But it remains the only time I've ever bothered to write to an estate. And then nine years later or eight years later, I go into a meeting and they're like, have you heard of Roald Dahl and have you ever considered writing <laughs> theatre? <laughs> yeah, because I was just known as a comedian and the Royal Shakespeare Company approached me based on my comedy and said, have you ever thought about writing theatre and have you ever heard of Roald Dahl? And I'm like, well, Roald Dahl's my favourite author of all time and I've written 12 scores for theatre because that's where I come from. That's where I came from before I was doing comedy. I was a failed composer uh, and a failed actor and a failed rock star. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> comedy was the last resort. And, uh, and by the way, I've also thought to... I've, I've already had this idea, so, yeah, I'll do that. So was that it was that. intimidating being yeah. in a meeting with the RSC with that great sort of pressure of the it Shakespearean kinda, reputation? It was, and I, I didn't even know what the meeting was about. I'm like, maybe they want me to write... Because, again, they didn't know that I'd written five scores for Shakespeare. The first thing I ever wrote for theatre, my first proper musical, was a musicalised version of Love's Labour's Lost. Like, I had a huge history of music and Shakespeare as well. All through uni I wrote scores for Shakespeare, basically. Not for the guy. He, he was already dead. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it was intimidating, but I think, weirdly, and it's a sort of big part of my career and story, and I think it's about being Australian and having nothing to lose... And coming from a sort of background where, I, I mean, it sort of intimidated, but at the same time they said, have you thought about, you know, writing theatre? And I went, Roald Dahl, musical theatre, don't screw this up. It's, you're going to bugger it up if you mm. get, you know, like I, was, I had strong opinions and I, I, I weirdly sort of felt intimidated but sort of also felt like, yeah, get me to get me to do it. You know, yeah. someone else will mark it up, and then another part of my brain is going, "Why don't you get someone proper to do it?" You know, so it was weird. It was interesting. Well, then I remember it when word started to spread that you were writing this musical and in the comedy world. The general consensus was, "Yeah, of course he is." Like it's right. this thing of like, you know, I think you've got a lot of respect in the industry, like the. You go back to your first comedy festival show and we now have the Director's Choice Award, which is an award that was created 
for you. <laughs> yeah, because, <laughs> because I was so off off, off the uh, radar. I was so far from the town hall that it wasn't until the last week of the comedy festival that anyone came. Yeah, and, they went, and then oh, it ex- exploded. Yeah, it was and, crazy. And the, that was so, that year. I mean, that was when I met you that yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, because we first met, it was backstage at, at Hi-Fi and we were both getting changed for... It was something that Sister She were doing. Yeah. We were both about to go on stage. And I, we, that's when we first met each other. And I remember going, well, I guess we'll, we'll never forget this because we both have no pants on. <laughs> <laughs> I have that memory as town hall, but it would have been high five, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was it, it was an interesting time, and I think that's right. I, I think a, a lot of people in England probably thought I was a weird choice, but I think people in Australia had a better idea that I that, that I that you knew what you were doing. Well, yeah, I certainly. Or that comedy yeah. was an afterthought for me. Not my. It's not like I'd spent ten years trying to become a comedian. Mm. But I mean, thank goodness, what a wonderful thing to have been allowed to do. I mean, it's, do, do the kids that that um, love Dahl, you know, people like, you know, the kids really get into the Royal Dahl story, yeah. do they have strong opinions about the musical? I mean, are they saying you should have done this or you should have done that? I don't know. Look, I I feel like the trick is... I, I, it's hard for me to... Well, actually, Matilda, of all things, I find I can talk about with great pride because I was such a small part of such an incredible bunch. You know, I think it's a beautiful piece of theatre and I can say that without being too conceited because I only managed to not bugger up the music <laughs> and lyrics. Like, and and what we got right is what is so hard about musical theatre and probably theatre in general but especially musical theatre is that the the pieces, the many, many pieces of it don't sit independently. So the, the set design, Rob Howe's set design, feels like the music sounds and the music sounds like the language of the story and the costume design and the lighting. You know, it's it, it's really beautifully done by, by these incredible people and I think kids, it feels like dull. It's really different from the book and it's very different from the movie but I don't think anyone comes out feeling like it's in an inauthentic adaptation. It feels... I mean, Roll's widow, Lissy, came up to me on opening night in Stratford with tears in her eyes and said, Roll would have oh oh. loved that. I was just about to ask you, have the Dahls given you any feedback? Because oh, they yeah, were quite been... famously critical of a lot of the films. So the oh, yeah, he adaption. hated them all. Yeah. yeah, and he always said he was never going to give another book to yeah. be made into a film. So yeah, well, huge. he did, and... and, and the Dahls were very involved. Uh, by the Dahls, I mean the literary state and all the advisors were involved in the making of the musical. They got to come in and have comments, and yeah. not not veto, but comments. And Lissy's a, a dear friend, and I spent a lot of time going out to Gypsy House, and so I, I mean, wow. I never got to meet him because he was um, he died long before. But it, and I like to think she's right. I like to think he would have, you know, she. They love Fantastic Mr. Fox, the Wes Anderson, and they love yeah. this and everything else. They're like, eh, it's a, you know, they, you know. The, it's it's hard to get the tone right, and uh, I like to think he would have liked it, but um, happily it doesn't matter. No, it's it not true. Like, <laughs> but but I, I do feel like that's the main piece of feedback we get is that we captured the spirit of it without being slave to the. Because as a children's book, you can't just put it on stage; it would bore mm. the hell out of adults. Whereas did, this is an adult. Did piece. your kids love it? Did you did you draw much? You know, when you were writing it, because you've got two young children. Yeah. Did they help in an aspect? I don't know. When when, when I sat down to write this, Casper was um, six weeks um, pre. Uh, entry into the world. So, uh, what's the word? He was pre-entry. Uh, pre-entry. <laughs> in utero. Yes, he. He. I had six weeks. Let's <laughs> prefer pre-entry. He was, <laughs> he was inside my wife, and uh, and uh, before he burst through the gates into the world, I wrote uh, Matilda in that period. Um, and I, I think having kids tr- triggers in you your own childhood memories. So I think in that way mm. it was good. Um, 
and I, you know, a bit of it, there's a moment when in this big backstory that Matilda tells on stage where this sort of fantasy figure father bursts into the room and sings, I'm here, please don't cry, I'm here, little girl. It's kind of the most melodramatic um, moment in the thing and it, that was based on a lullaby I used to sing that I just made up in, you know, that I used to uh, sing to my daughter and stuff like that. So I think yeah, nice. it allows you to dig in, you know. Right. There you go. Uh, we probably should let you go, but just quickly well, before you... go. I finally got to triple R. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and you're going to kick me out? Well, we'd love out to have you stay. Mm. But quickly, can we talk about your um, Cardinal Pell song? Yeah. That Where, was a How surprise. do you feel about that? Did you, yeah, did you expect that that was... And how did it all come about? What made you want to write that in the first place? So really short version of the story. In yeah. December when Pell yet again said, oh, I can't come back, you know, which he'd said in... There's so much stuff that uh, that people who are defenders of... The, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to continue attacking the guy, but um, mm. that, that they just f- fail to mention, like, you know, he didn't come back for the second Royal Commission in May because he said it's too far to fly but he was back in Ballarat like four weeks before that, just for a visit, you know, and stuff like that. He misunderstood how important it was to survivors to come back. And so I, I was really annoyed when in December he said, oh, no, I'm too sick. I thought, uh, this sounds familiar, old boy. I, I think really you just, you know it's going to be a shit fight and you don't want to face it. So I wrote some lyrics and then in, like, Feb- early February, Georgie Coughlin said, well, you know, we're trying to talk about this as much as we can on the project. We think it's outrageous. Have you thought about writing a song? And I went, oh, I have actually. Yeah. But I still, I was really busy. And then I watched Spotlight and I went, oh, bugger this. And I sat down and wrote it in a day. And I was like, Sarah, to my wife, I said, you know, I'm writing this song. I can't help but write it. I really want to write it. I hadn't written a comedy song in five years, you know. I was like, I can't not write this song. I'm furious. And I played it to her and I went, is it it a waste of time? And for the first time ever, Sarah's like, no, you you have to finish that. And so I wrote it and then went, maybe, and I sent it to the survivors that I've had contact with because of my Pope song. And, and I said to the lady who's my contact in Ballarat, I'm like, show it to people, hopefully it'll bring them a smile. I don't know if I don't put it into the public domain. I think it's, it'll bring a, a storm down on my head. Mm. And then I got to Perth the next week. I flew all the way to Perth to do the opening of the International Arts Festival. It's a beautiful, amazing piece of theatre that I got to just be a little part of. And my manager went, well, I reckon you should put it out. And, you know, we got a lawyer to check it and stuff. And I went, well, we should do it properly then. And I booked a studio. So we did one day in a studio, one day writing, and then a week later, one day in a studio. And then by that night, my manager was like, I think this is going to have an impact. So I was on the Mm. phone to Mushroom Records going, can you get this on iTunes tomorrow? It was like the most in the moment little bit of satire activism. It was so adrenaline-y. And then I hopped on a plane and by the time the project played it, I was out, I was gone. And then then all the, all the, all the news programs ring my manager going, where is he? Is he being paid by Channel 9? You know, what, what, when's he going to talk? And my manager's like, he's gone. So, so yeah. good See you later, mate. <laughs> a quarter of a million bucks later. So, so yeah. how did it feel watching this all unfold this last few weeks? Do you feel particularly kind of attached to the situation when all the kind of... It, it's... Um, when George finally spoke up? Yeah, I, I did. It felt like it had... I mean, I know it's just a drop in the ocean of a, of a sort of tsunami of uh, public anger... So it wasn't... It, I was the catalyst of something, the song was, and I'm very proud of that. Um, I don't think people like the right-wing press and stuff who who calling me a bigot and all this, I don't think they realise that this is my work. It's what I do is I write songs mm. that, that try to undercut religious privilege. It's kind of what I've done most of. Um, so I'm very... 
and and if you could read a tenth of the letters I've got, a fiftieth of the letters I've got, that just make you cry, realizing how important it is for survivors of this to be heard. Which sounds airy fairy, but the thing is, these kids went and said, "This priest did this to me," and they said, "We don't believe you. He's a priest." Which is why you have to write songs treating the cardinal as a man, not as a cardinal. Mm-hmm. Which is why the people don't understand the purpose of the song is to undercut received religious reverence, right? Mm. So kids would go to, you know, the parents say, "Priest, you, he, he couldn't have. He, he's a priest. We, we can't mm. talk about that." And so for years they haven't felt heard, and that's why they need Pearl back, and that's why we flew them over because they need to understand that someone's looking them in the eye and saying, we believe you, we know you're telling the truth. And so to the extent that I contributed to some of that healing, I'm incredibly proud and honoured mm. to be honoured, honestly. The staff, the, I don't even want to mention the arseholes' names, the, the right-wing press who just, whose job it is to just say, to defend the powerful, I... I hate being the subject of those stuff. It's it's awful. I want to ring him up and go, do you believe this? Do you actually believe this? Mm. And why are you so good at empathising with George and so incapable of empathising with, you know, and I know he's become a scapegoat, but he is the head of the church and he did sit around for 30 years mm. not looking or blocking his ears, even if, you know, as you can tell, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> yes. It's been very full on. For, yeah. For my we could talk about it for hours, but we really do have to let you go. Okay. We've got to go to the news. Um, Matilda the Musical, uh, it's starting on Friday at the Princess Theatre. Can we get tickets? Well, yes. And, and it's selling uh, wonderfully well, and it's going to be amazing in Melbourne. And please, if, if you're finding it hard to get tickets, just wait. There, there will be um, More another available. release available. But um, all the seats in the theatre are amazing, so, so come along. Yay. Tim Minter, thank you so much. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3 R. Luke McGregor is a comedian. That's why we're already laughing. <laughs> He's the man behind the new show, Lukewarm Sex, which is premiering on your ABC this Wednesday from 9pm. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Morning, buddy. Morning. <laughs> so, look, people tuning in on Wednesday, the, the title Lukewarm Sex gives people a little bit of an idea, but what are they going to find when they tune in? It's basically just a doco about... Well, I, I guess I, I call it doco, but it's it's a six-part series. It's basically about uh, just how to get better at sex. Um, just because I... And was not very good at sex and I wanted to get better at it. <laughs> Funny. Selfish reasons. <laughs> I've seen um, a few of the episodes of it and it's a very funny show. As you explained right at the start, you're very awkward about many things to do with sex. And oh, yeah. sort of se- Yet in this show, you show yourself doing things that many of us would find excruciatingly embarrassing. There's one scene where you're asking your parents about their sex life. There's another scene where you're performing comedy in the nude and so on and so forth. Why do you do this to yourself? Well, I I was thinking about... uh, Because I am very nervous about all this stuff. I was thinking about sort of why... I was able to do it. I think the reason was because I, I was I, my, my biggest fear was that the docker would come out, no one would like it, and I'd never have sex again. And I'm like, well, that's <laughs> that's my life now, so <laughs> there was nothing to lose. So I was sort of it gave me the sort of courage to. Um, uh, I was still nervous, but it sort of gave me the courage to at least try things, um, just because I didn't feel like I had, um, yeah, I could lose anything basically. When you're going to talk to your parents about sex, do you have to kind of prep them off camera and be like, okay, this is going to be horrible or do they were they just up for it no i just 
I just I wanted to do it. I just asked him because I said, well, look, well, this is kind of where all the anxiety started for me around sex was the fact that we never talked about it. And uh, I just said, you know, would you mind just talking about it on camera? And I, I said if they really didn't like it, they could we could just cut it. Um, but uh, in the end, they're okay with it. Um, can't remember if I asked them if they, if, about cutting it. Actually, no, but, <laughs> <laughs> I did. but yeah, so that was it. But it, um, I, th- I thought it was important to start the journey there, sort of at least, because I uh, just that's where I that's where I first started learning about sex. I think Dad just gave me a book once and closed, <laughs> closed the door and said, "Here, read that." <laughs> but you've got brothers as well. You didn't. Did that? Do you reckon your parents just kind of let you sort it out for yourselves? Yeah, because they never got talked about it. To they they never got talked from their parents growing up, and then I, they never talked to us growing mm. up, and then. Then it was. Then school came, and school never really talked to us about it beyond just the mechanical, like man, woman, Lego version of sex, where it's yeah. just like this goes here, and this is how you stop getting a disease, and that was kind of all we got. And uh, I felt like that didn't cover everything. So I don't know. Just as I got older, I uh, I was very nervous around um, the opposite sex, and I um, I just never really. I didn't really have. I only had sex once when I was twenty five, and then again a couple of years later, and then just that was, that was the learning experiences. But it's different now. You you're doing all right now, though. Aren't now, you? Yeah. now now it's great. Now it's just <laughs> every day. I've got a, I've got I've got an eight pm swimming to get out of here. So. Uh, okay, in in the show you talk to. I hesitate to use the word sexpert, but various sexperts about um, different aspects of sex. What was the most confronting thing from you for, for you, and what did you learn the most from? I, I think the the nudity was one that was really hard, just because I I I'd never been able to get naked unless the lights were off before, um, and I, or I was already under the sheets. Um, <laughs> Can I so? just watching that episode with? I'd felt exactly the same. I reckon I had the same hang-ups about being nude. So when you do, when you do get naked, I cried so much because oh, I thanks, felt Jess. your anxiety <laughs> as well. I just like I know because I, you know, I just went and and knowing you and knowing exactly how you would feel in that situation, I was like, oh, it was just this triumphant yes, <laughs> yes, it's the best. Oh, thanks, Jess. I appreciate it. It was. Um... <laughs> Yeah, that was the the weirdest part was when I once I did it like like ten minutes in, uh, that's when I started to feel like it wasn't a big deal anymore. But it was like the actual doing of it that made my brain go, oh, I guess this isn't a big deal because mm. you're around other people who are naked, and it wasn't a big deal to them. So you just can't. You just the, sort of these can't are the help. nudists that you're hanging yeah, out with. Yeah, so it's like you can't help but take on their mindset just because they're the dominant paradigm in the room at, at that point. So it was it was weird. Like, I was surprised at how quickly I adjusted. I'd had a few wines at that point. But it did change me. And I, since then I have been able to get naked when I'm sleeping with someone, which is good because it's it's easy to have sex when you're naked. <laughs> <laughs> These and many other things will be explained. Yeah. Of course, the show. Well, which of the segments did you think you learnt the most from? Um, the the biggest one was when I started do, when I started doing the classes on just different techniques, like in um, just g- different general massage techniques, basically uh, cunnilingus, flush, all this other stuff. Um, <laughs> it was like I thought it would be like I'd have like a like a list of stuff that I knew about that I could try, and it was more around everyone that I talked to said, um, look, even if we teach you something, um, a, a certain stroke technique, um, then everyone's going to like a different pressure, everyone's going to like a different speed, and everyone's going to like it for a different length of time. So. The, the biggest thing is communication and that's and that communication is a mood enhancer not a mood killer that was kind of the bigger biggest aha moment for me because um, if you know your body better than anyone so if you're not sharing what you find pleasurable 
then you, you just there's no way for the other person to know mm. if something's um, working or not. Um, so it's uh, it was yeah it was um, and it doesn't have to be too clinical, but uh, that was um, that was the biggest moment that changed me. I think. Mm. You, you, you mentioned that you didn't learn very much about sex when you were growing up. I also wonder, though, we're in a society where you're kind of pressured to feel all the time that sex is the most important thing. It's happening everywhere. Everyone else is having sex. Do you think that that you were under pressure to feel like you should be this great sexual person when maybe you weren't? Yeah, I think um, we all think that everyone else is doing better at it than we are <laughs> or everyone else knows how to do it except... Uh, that's all right, I felt anyway. I just felt like everyone else knew how to do it except for me and, like, I'd just missed a class or something and it was too late to catch up <laughs> because I was too old. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I know growing up in my friendship group, there was always a lot of pressure to um, have maybe come across as having more sex than you'd had. Um, and then it became this cycle of everyone sort of trying to imply that they have had heaps of sex or they knew exactly what they were doing and just little things like... I remember growing up, uh, the first time I saw uh, another kid my age, uh, penis in the when we were um, at the swimming carnival, and I'm like, oh, his is bigger than mine. Does that mean mine's worse? And never because I, because we, that was never discussed at school. Whether the, I don't know, and I, I don't know what the right age to teach it is, but like the importance of um, size and how it doesn't actually have a it doesn't actually have an impact on sex. In fact, the penis is the uh, hardest organ to 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 stimulate um, any sort of area with because it's just this sort of rod um, and. Um, <laughs> Like, but I, I just didn't know that, so I assumed that um, you know bigger was better, and uh, that was just sort of, and that was just added to my fears of it. <laughs> and who who did you did you have a, cert, a certain viewer in mind when you were putting the show together? Oh, just just anyone who had questions they were embarrassed to ask, um, and just felt like they were now didn't didn't know who to ask them. So I just thought if I ask every all the questions for everyone else then I can just be the one who's I can just put a GoPro on, GoPro on my head and then just go and ask all the questions <laughs> for everyone <laughs> and, and I guess also anyone who's maybe maybe they, they are with someone and they're not having the sex that they would um, they would like or they're not feeling like their sex like it was exactly where they want it to be just feeling like they can start use it as like a primer to start being able to feel like they can talk about it mm. um also in the show, you, there's an episode where you talk about your, you don't think you're a very good kisser. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can let everybody know that you're a terrific kisser. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have, you guys Remember, had a, we've have you guys had a bit of a pass? Multiple times. Really? Yeah. I think kissed like three times. Yeah, now. yeah. You were way you're really than, good. You were way better than the tomato I kissed at the show, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. For, yes, yeah, so for those who haven't watched, there is, in fact, some lengthy kissing with pieces of fruit. Uh, it's a very funny scene, isn't there, when you're in a, a green grocer shop trying to choose which piece of fruit you're most attracted to. That was tough. I didn't know which. I ended, I ended up picking up like a passion fruit, but they're so gross on the outside. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's got a nice personality. Sorry, just before we finish up, then. Okay, so the premise is you wanted to get better at at sex. Did you get better at sex? And is this something, this journey, something you can recommend for uh, people? Well, yeah, I'm I'm having regular sex now, which has uh, been a nice change as opposed to no sex. <laughs> um, so it's been it's been good. I, I think the, the the biggest thing, like even if I didn't do any of the classes, was just to know that it was okay to talk about. It and to say that I'm... Because every time you have sex with a new person, you're kind of starting at a base anyway because you don't know what each other's um, been through, you don't know what each other likes. So um, some communication is key with every interaction. So I think as long as you're communicating, you're okay. That's that's a... Yeah, if, even if I could... That's very wise of you. Have you had any feedback? 
Uh, yeah, I've started talking about it to... Um, about your show. Oh, the no. show. Oh, yeah. no, no. <laughs> Been getting a lot of tweets about the sex. Um, got a hashtag. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Only people, the only people who've seen the show is press so far. So um, I didn't mean about no, the show. But that's oh, sorry. I did mean the show. Sorry. Oh, um, yeah, see, yeah, no, I've started... I've, I've just started really early days seeing someone and um, we, we, we have started talking about it. And, and we've tried to make... Um, if we do debrief, sometimes we'll just do it over lunch, so we don't have to necessarily do it in the bedroom. It's like so that way, when you can, um, you can whatever you discuss, you can say, okay, now I can take that to the bedroom and be more a bit more spontaneous um, in the moment, rather than having to discuss it all at the exact moment you're trying to have um, sex. It sounds horrifying. <laughs> yes. The show is called Lukewarm Sex. It, it starts uh, this Wednesday at nine pm. We've been talking to Luke McGregor. Thanks so much for coming to Breakfast. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. It's time for the dinner review. Dinner review. Let's be cool and give your dinner review. <laughs> it's different to last week's song. It's yeah, it'll be different, different every week. week. Okay, good. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Let's start with you, Yeah, Geraldine. so last night um, we went and saw Matilda and I had a very busy day. I had a lot on, a lot on. Uh, I just did stuff. <laughs> and anyway, it, as a result, I didn't get into the city until just before the show. So I went, ducked into 7-Eleven and grabbed a, a, a chicken and avocado and lettuce sandwich. And uh, I stood alongside the red carpet and ate that. <laughs> and I can actually vouch for this because I was waiting for Geraldine, looking for, there was a red carpet, there's ladies in gowns everywhere. Um, and I'm looking for Geraldine and I look out and there she is with like her backpack strapped across her chest, eating a sandwich. And then she walks in and cracks a Red Bull. Oh, yeah, but the Red Bull was too big. I didn't realise I got a big, I didn't realise they came in different size cans. I don't know how I didn't realise when I grabbed it off the shelf and went and paid for it. And you weren't tempted to hold out and until the free food came? No, oh, what? No, there was no, there was free, no free food. food. Was no. there? No, nah. nah, it's too, too many people to cater. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was at the Princess Theatre. It was sold out. It's not like one of your little plays that you go to <laughs> where... <laughs> Anyway, the sandwich was top notch. Fresh bread, lovely chicken was cooked, so that was a bonus. You haven't and got salmonella today, no, which is good. No, so I'm feeling good. So I, um, given the circumstances, I'll give it um, <laughs> four out of five. It's the saddest dinner of the week, I think. <laughs> uh, no. Or is yours? <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. Uh, no, well, I, I, I should... Um, give a shout out to Michelle Bennett who's the producer here at Triple R because she's uh, a gin fancier. Yes. So Michelle and I have been comparing gins because oh, we both... Oh, yes. Did you have gin for dinner? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is what I'm working, working up to. So, yes, I bought... Um, last week I bought a very expensive bottle of gin. Um, it's called... A, it's a South Australian gin. I think it's called Settler's Gin, mm. which is incredibly expensive. Uh, more than I expected. Right, mate. We're all <laughs> making money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, so I had an early lunch and so I was just sitting there watching television. I was eating cheese and crackers. And I was drinking oh, gin. That's that was that, that, yeah, that is the saddest yes. thing, and I love it. It's not sad. That's that's terrific. <laughs> I was going to say that that's twice that. Was it? We had this dinner review. I'm painting this picture of myself. <laughs> desperate alcoholic. What, what? No. What? what no. But you just have like it's so nice. You just have a little bit of ice, a little bit of this gin, a little bit of cucumber, and that's it. Really? Yeah, I am. So yeah, no tonic. Um, and no, no tonic because it's so nice. 
Oh yeah, I don't like tonic anyway. Um, I tell me, your cheese and crackers were they just your standard block of extra tasty and some? <laughs> they might have been. <laughs> yes, he was too drunk to realise. <laughs> Uh, so a common theme in our sad dinners is that they were all had alone. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's is just that, something that about this, us. This, that's what this segment is going to be known as, sad dinners. Sad, sad solo dinners. Uh, I was waiting for Geraldine and to come into the city to go and watch Matilda and there was that Telstra outage. I don't know if you heard about that, but I couldn't get any connection on my phone so I didn't even know if I could call Geraldine to see where she was. But I did decide just to go and have dinner by myself at uh, Tasty Bow, Juicy Bow in Chinatown, which is a place where they serve bao and dumpling, and then I decided not to get either bao or dumpling. I oh. got really, really chilli tofu with pork, and it made me quite upset. Sounds all right. In your uh, belly. It was delicious. Yeah, it was just a bit overwhelming. It was a really hot day, and I yeah. didn't really think through the process. I mean, it's their hottest dish on the on the menu. Oh. And it was fine. I sat and ate a little bit of that, and I had a zing tao. I think you win. I think always that's... drink responsibly. Yeah, always drink responsibly. So no, that I, was... I, I think that sounds like quite a nice dinner. It was a nice dinner. It was just like then I had to go. You're to a the... bit lonely. Yeah, it was a bit lonely, and it was a bit full of chili when I went to Matilda, and yeah, you had a bit of a belly ache. Yeah, a little bit of a belly ache. Yeah. That is a good way of putting it. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Zora Sanders, former editor of Mianjin, former guest on my old show, Hullabaloo, now here. Former, former, former. Former, former, former. current yeah. guest on The Breakfasters. <laughs> How are you going, Zora? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I am pretty well this morning, breakfasters. <laughs> That's good. We've brought you in to talk weird history, as you do so well. And today mm. we're going to talk about a woman known as Big Bertha. Or Not the... by me. I, I have more respect for her, so I don't refer to her that way. Some people yes. apparently <laughs> refer to or also the Confidence Queen. The Confidence Queen, which I think is a much better title, isn't it? So, uh, Bertha Heyman, as was possibly her real name, possibly not, um, was a 19th century con artist. And there is a fantastic tradition of kind of historical female con artists. I just love them. I just love them. I can't even feel like I don't even. You read about the things they do, and I just don't even feel remotely sorry for the people they conned. Like I'm just like, <laughs> you were amazing because you know they're. Uh, so sometimes you know it's the kind of cons that we're more familiar with today. In fact, Bertha was sort of well known for a kind of version of the sort of Nigerian prince con, where you know you're contacted by someone who says, "Oh, you know, I've I've come into I've come into a great fortune, but I just need you know I just need a little bit of money now in order to access the fortune for some complicated reason. If you give me this little bit of money, then I'll pay you back, you know, with with huge interest once my fortune comes through." And um, presumably, she's not doing it via email. No, no, doing it in person, which I think is a lot more impressive. And she was, you know, as she she was sometimes called Big Bertha. She was not the kind of slight, alluring seductress Did she have a big that you might be imagining. She definitely had a big personality. She was described <laughs> as as you know being incredibly charming and incredibly uh, believable. And she appeared very honest and forthright and um, respectable. And she was not at all. Wow. <laughs> she, she was she was amazing. So, so she, yeah. So she pretend, she'd pretend to be a wealthy woman, and um, you know she just needed some money in order to pay solicitors' fees. She'd just divorced from her husband, who was a millionaire, and if she could just you know hire this solicitor, oh. she'd be able to access his fortune. And um, she really seemed to be able to con just about anyone. A lot of good stories about her. One of my favourite ones is that 
She was on a train from Chicago to New York and by the time she got off the train, she'd convinced the sleeping car conductor to quit his job, move to New York with his whole family to be her estate manager. Like, this woman could talk wow. and he did it. He came to New York and it was only when he sort of showed up and she showed him these, you know, be these enormous mansions that she told him that she owned and... Um, he, you know, it, he got. She got a lot of money out of him. You know, saying, you know, oh, I, I can, I need you. You'll be my, you'll be my agent, and you just need to pay. Just this walking and then along the street, money. going, yeah, that's boy, <laughs> yeah, that's boy, that's boy. That is, that is certainly the, uh, the impression that I had of how it went down. And she, uh, another, another one is, so she was, she was married uh, twice. The second husband, I'm not sure existed, but the first, the first <laughs> husband. Um, one of, he, one of his friends, she managed to con out of $200, which is a lot of the time. And then she went back to him 10, 10 years later after not having paid him back, obviously, and told him that she'd recently become an heiress. And if he could just lend her another $1,000, <gasps> no. she'd pay him back both amounts. And he did it. He oh, gave her the no. money. Oh, and ten, like, yeah, you were that's right. That's a lot of that. money. That's like, you know, at least 10 grand, 10 grand in, you know, US dollars today. Very, very impressive. And, um, she she really enjoyed scamming people who thought that they were like getting something out of her, or you know she really enjoyed she 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 didn't want to fool she didn't want to scam people who were kind of gullible already. And there's a great um, quote from her in the New York Times in 1883, where she says, "The moment I discover a man's a fool, I let him drop. But I, but I delight in getting into the confidence and pockets of men who think they can't be skinned. It ministers ministers to my intellectual pride." <gasps> I, like Bertha. Bertha. Yeah. Yeah. I like Bertha. I like her a lot. And uh, she she had another scam where she deposited a packet of like old newspapers and stuff in a sealed legal envelope at a solicitor's, and then kind of used the fact that she'd done this and te- and she'd she'd you know meet with the solicitor and say you know I, I have this large portfolio of stocks and bonds and I'm going to deposit them with you and they'd be like oh yes yes very good very good and then that knowledge would help her leverage get loans against this supposed fortune from other people and um and then they you know eventually they'd be they'd open the packet and be all you know all newspapers and stuff and she'd be (laughs) discovered but she did it so many times she managed to con people while she was in prison for conning people (laughs) while she was serving time in prison on blackwell's island she managed to befriend the warden's servant a man named uh, charles carp and conned him out of his life savings (gasps) of the equivalent of twenty thousand dollars us um and she was in prison for conning people and she's st- <laughs> how's that not, amazing have they not made a hollywood film out of out I, of it this is crazy I, that is you know that's a great question and there's um there's a fabulous book from 1886 which was written by the New York Inspector of Police and Chief of Detectives who describes her. And I have to say, if you're appearing in a book about... That's, and the book was called, like, Professional Criminals of America. <laughs> it's like, if you're appearing in a book, you feel like maybe the game's up. But um, he said, This remarkable woman used to lodge in the leading hostel- hostels and was always attended by a maid or manservant. At the Windsor and Brunswick hotels in New York City, she had elegant quarters. When plotting her schemes, she would glibly talk about her dear friends, always men well-known for their wealth and social possession position. She possesses a wonderful knowledge of human nature and can deceive those who consider themselves particularly shrewd in business matters. Do we know much about her upbringing? Like how is... Yeah, she was... So she was born... She was actually born in Prussia and uh, her father was convicted of fraud. We know this much about her. So possibly it kind of ran, you know, ran (laughs) ran in the blood a little bit. Um, and she she learned well. She learned it, you know. If her father was a a, a con man, she she certainly uh, 
took up the family business. And what did she do with all this money? Like when she got the money off oh, these people? Well, she claims that she gave it, most of it away to the poor, which, you know, ah, who knows. But, I mean, she certainly was dropping a lot of it on expensive uh, hotels and, and maids and stuff. But she, she claimed that, you know, she wasn't interested in the money. It was just the getting of the money. The having of the money didn't interest her. It was the, all about the getting of the money. And whatever happened to her? Yeah, good question. She's, she spent a lot of time in prison um, on and off and then she kind of disappears from the, from the sort of record. So mm. what happened to her? She probably, you know, retired into a life of wealth and uh, luxury and, you know, lived to a ripe old age. That's what I, that's what I like to imagine. <laughs> anyway. um, all right, we've probably got time just quickly. You mentioned before you have some other famous uh, con- women con artists. Maybe yeah, one more. Yeah. Uh, well, so another one that I particularly like is a woman called... Well, not really called, but she presented herself as Princess Caribou. So this is in... The fakest name of all time. It's in 1817, this mysterious, attractive woman uh, appeared in a small village near Bristol and she was sort of dressed very exotically, had her hair wrapped in a turban and was speaking a language that nobody could, uh, could understand. And eventually she ended up being kind of taken in by the local magistrate who lived in this big fancy house and uh, conveniently a part... Passing, passing sailor claimed to be able to speak her language and then translated for her and uh, said that she was she was a princess from the island of Java Sioux, uh, where that is, I don't think was uh, was ever specified, <laughs> and she'd been kidnapped and then jumped off the ship and managed to swim ashore uh, to Bristol and that she was, you know, this... this th- foreign royalty and she was quite a sensation mainly because she took to swimming naked in the lake on the estate <laughs> so, <laughs> so people <laughs> like and she'd she'd sort of go fencing climb trees she'd pray to her god called Allah Tala which was uh you know and yeah so she yeah, she became quite famous and unfortunately she became a bit too famous and uh there were there were pictures of her in the newspaper and a woman outed her as a as being someone who worked as a servant for her and who enjoyed speaking in fake languages to her children um but as quite sweetly the the, the lady of the house where she'd been staying decided not to kind of you know have her thrown in jail. She actually uh, paid for her to go to America instead, where she she kind of continued the the Princess oh. Caribou Act so oh. as, as a kind of vaudeville thing for for, for many years. Well, so not too bad. Nice to imagine that she ended up meeting up with. Uh... She act. I do know how where, how she ended up. She ended up selling leeches to a hospital. That was her source of income. <laughs> yeah, right. right. I am years. Princess there Caribou. You would you like a leech? <laughs> yeah. And who could say no to that kind of offer? Thank you very much, Zora Sanders. We will see you again, no doubt. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.